Well, I want to thank my friends Jerry and Judy Toon uh, for their leadership in the prayer ministry that uh, Jerry uh, presented to you. I want to thank you for doing such an excellent job in casting that vision and want to just build on some of his words and encourage you to consider um, being a part of this ministry. I think it will be a, a, a deep blessing uh, to you and your life. I know it will be for the whole church family. My favorite story... My all-time favorite prayer story is a story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, keep in mind that in the 19th century, uh, there was no other preacher like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, he started preaching him when he was 17 years of age and grew quickly. His, his popularity began to uh, soar in London. And so he, he was preaching at the Park Street Chapel and then later at the Metropolitan Tabernacle that they had to build to accommodate the thousands of people that were coming to hear this man of God proclaim God's word. Well, one day, as the story is told, some people showed up, some visitors, uh, to see uh, what was going on at the Metropolitan Tabernacle? And so they, they caught one of the, either the elders or the deacons of the church, and they said, we're curious, what is the power behind this ministry? Well, they went to find C.H. Spurgeon, and he was posed that question. And he said, oh, he said, I can just imagine with his Brit British accent, oh, unbelievable. He said, I, I will show you the power behind this ministry. Come with me. And they took a walk, and they walked and walked and walked, and they went downstairs and found a room with a little window, and he said, take a peek into that room. That is the secret to the power of this ministry. And as the guests who were wondering about the, the power of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they looked in, and several people were on their knees in prayer. That was the power behind Charles Haddon Spurgeon's ministry. And so we want to invite you to be a part of this vital ministry. Nothing would thrill me more if Jerry received phone call after phone call after phone call, email after email after email. What, wouldn't it be a great problem if too many people signed up? We will accommodate that. And so I, I want to challenge you to at least give it a try. Uh, try to do it once a quarter. Try to do it once a month. Whatever you can fit into your schedule, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to take just a moment before we open God's Word and pray for, for Jerry and Judy and also the efforts that they're uh, putting forth to um, continue this very vibrant ministry. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the tunes and uh, the, the deep encouragement that they've been to me over the last year and beyond. And God, I, I pray that you would bless them now for their efforts. God, I pray that you would prompt this church family to send a multitude of emails and make a, a whole long list of calls that people would literally line up to be a part of this very important ministry. And then I pray that each person who pursues this ministry that it would be a, a deep and lasting blessing to them as they see the power of prayer manifest in this place. God, I know in the hearts of uh, many hearts and minds here in this place, we desire to see lost people hear the gospel and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire that disciples would be built up and nurtured and strengthened and then sent out into the world to share about the wonderful gospel message to participate in your kingdom program. Lord, we know that prayer is what undergirds all these efforts. And I ask that 
uh, this church family would rally around uh, the tunes and uh, this mat, this ministry action team committed to prayer and that you would uh, show us your faithfulness and your goodness as the people of God come faithfully to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a great song. Some would call it a hymn. Some would call it a chorus. I want to read a few lines from it this morning. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man up on the cross. My sin, my sin upon his shoulders. Your sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Ashamed, I hear your mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. I want to have you think this morning about those words. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. I have found over the years that when it comes to radical depravity, that is the sinfulness of people, that many people are simply utterly unwilling to admit the depth of what they need to be delivered from. Have you learned that with some non-Christian people? In fact, I've learned over the years that most non-believers, most unbelievers at a point in their life are utterly unwilling to admit the depth of radical depravity they need to be delivered from. On the other hand, tragically, I might add, I have learned over the years that others are unwilling to, to admit the depths that they have been delivered from. That is, Christ followers. And it's expressed in statements like this. Pastor, why do we continually have to hear about sin? I have been delivered from sin. Why the messages on total depravity? I'm convinced that one of the reasons for that is that like non-believers who are unwilling to admit what they need to be delivered from, some Christ followers are unwilling to admit what they have been delivered from. This morning, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely crucial that you come face to face, that you understand the depths of all that you have been delivered from. You see, when you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ delivered you from not only the penalty of sin, but that he has delivered you from the power of sin, do you know what the result of that is? Worship. When you say, Lord Jesus, I, I think I finally get it. I realize that when, when I, I came to Christ, I was delivered from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. That should make my hands extend into the air and say, thank you, as the song says, thank you for saving me. When you remember how you were a former prisoner in the slave market of sin, and that Jesus Christ came and pounded down that massive door that held you in bondage, it leads you to do one thing. 
It leads you to adore and worship the living God of the universe. When you look back and remember about your stone-cold heart, when you remember your obstinate will, what you used to call your free will, when you remember your fleshly desires that utterly dominated your life and ruled you, and see how Jesus redeemed you from the curse of sin, it will lead you to unbridled praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus today, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a non-Christian, it is absolutely crucial this morning that you see and understand the depth of what you need to be delivered from. You see, God's word says that all unbelievers are spiritually dead. All unbelievers are spiritually blind. All non-Christians are spiritually deaf. They are alienated from God. They're enslaved to sin. You might say they are utterly incapacitated. All non-believers are spiritually darkened. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he said in chapter 2 that all unbelievers are lost without hope and without God. All of those terms describe you. If you were here at Christ Fellowship this morning and have refused to this point to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Mocking Voice. And our task this morning is to literally find our voice. That is, we must examine the mocking voice that each one of us were born with. I had a conversation with a man probably a year and a half ago. And not having studied this passage for this particular Sunday, we got talking about the the nature of the mocking voice. We got talking about the, the nature of radical depravity, and I will never forget that conversation. This individual told me that that did not describe him. This individual talked about how he was a seeker of God before he was a child of God. That radical depravity really didn't inflict him like other people. And I've had conversations over the years with people that reflect conversations like that. And so our task, wherever you are in the spectrum today, our task is to find our voice, to examine the mocking voice that each one of us were born with. And so if you are a Christ follower today, I want to challenge you to come face to face with your former mocking voice, your former mocking voice. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, once again, I want to challenge you to see the depth of all that you need to be delivered from. Without naming names this morning, there are a number of you who have recently trusted Christ. I would hasten to say that if if you were to go to new believers and ask them, I would honestly challenge you to do it and ask them, what have you been delivered from? My friends that are new believers will give you a whole laundry list of all they've been delivered from. There is nothing more encouraging than that. There is nothing more exciting to see new believers excited about all they have been delivered from. And so what is it about the rest of us? Those of us who have been walking with Jesus for 20 or 30 or 40 plus years, well, we need to remember the nature 
of that mocking voice. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I would challenge you to see the very depths of all that you need to be delivered from today and to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And Lord willing, we will finish chapter 8 today. John chapter 8. And we'll begin reading in verse 48. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the holy word of God. This is the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, that is Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you were not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We have already seen in our study together in the Gospel of John the the varied responses of these religious leaders we know as the Pharisees. We have seen that the Pharisees repudiated the light. They repudiated the light dogmatically and defiantly. Indeed, the scriptures say that the Pharisees hate the light. We have seen that these religious leaders have seething hearts as they disregard impending judgment, as they are drowning in self-righteousness, as they are distracted by worldly pursuits, as they are utterly disturbed by the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned that these religious leaders rejected a walk of faith. They not only rejected a walk of faith, they rejected the holy word of God. Additionally, they rejected the way of truth. And we've also learned that the Pharisees, at the end of the day, reject a walk with God. And so this morning, as we expose the mocking voice, I want you to see three ways that the Pharisees in this passage mocked Jesus Christ. And we will see together that each one of these components, each one of these mocking voices are very significant and they are very sinful. But I want to spend the majority of our time on the third 
mocking voice. And the reason I tell you that in advance is many of you have been in a high school class or a college class. It's a, it's a phenomenon of American culture that whenever you come near the end of a lecture or the end of a, an address or the end of a class or young people when the bell's about to ring or at the end of a sermon, there's something that happens and it works something like this. And I see it a lot. I, the pages start to rustle. The pens go in the front pocket. The pencils go in the purse. Wrestling happens and attention goes out the window. So as we move through the three kinds of mocking voices, I want to alert you that number three is a big one. And so keep your Bibles open. Keep your pens ready to write and your eyes ready to see and your ears ready to hear and your heart ready to respond to the truth of God's word. I want to encourage you to lean in, literally lean in and ask God to instruct you and ask that the Holy Spirit would be your teacher as you hear the word of God. I want to pray as we begin. Our Father, we have seen uh, so many things about these religious leaders, and it's, on the one hand, it is very, very discouraging to see the level uh, of unbelief. It's a heavy weight uh, to consider all these things, how the Pharisees, uh, on an ongoing basis, rejected Jesus and his ministry, how their hearts were totally hardened by sin. And so, Lord, today, as we continue to see the unbelief of the Pharisees, I pray that we would uh, discern their mocking voice. I pray for believers that they would recall the mocking voice that they used to have that was uh, sent in the direction of Jesus. And for those who are not Christians, I pray they would discover, perhaps for the first time, their mocking voice and that they would turn from their mocking voice and that their mocks and jeers would turn to saving faith, would turn to belief, would turn to worship in the God of the universe. So, Lord, would you be so kind this morning to, to guide us through this passage? I pray that you'd help me to explain it in a way that is understandable, to a way, in a way that is thought-provoking, in a way that prompts your people to action. We give you the glory in advance. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look with me at the first mocking voice that emerges in verses 48 to 50? Here we see that the Pharisees mock his motives. The Pharisees mock his motives. In verse 48, the Jews answer Jesus, are, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so I want you to see here that when the Pharisees mock the motives of the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, is really they are leveling a criticism at Jesus. I want you to see the Pharisees' criticism really in in two steps. The first step is found in verse 48, and the second also is in verse 48. The first step is they say, Jesus, you, as they point their bony fingers at his face, you are a Samaritan. And if you don't know the weightiness of that criticism and all that's involved in it, recognize that the Samaritans were what you might refer to as a half-breed. Really, you can say that all of us are half-breeds or three-fourths breeds. Or I mean, uh, I, I have British blood in me and Welsh blood in me. And so in that sense, I'm a 
Thank you. Are you with me? I'm a half-breed. I'm a British Welsh. And I'm very proud of it. That's why I like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I think, so much. And so are you. Some of you are half-breeds. But this kind of a half-breed had racial overtones. Because the half-breed that the Jews have in mind here, the half-breed that the Pharisees have in mind is that a Samaritan was part Jew and part Gentile. And if you're part Jew and part Gentile, you are discriminated against. You are railed against. You are disdained by people in that culture. The Samaritans were the castaways. The Samaritans were were those who were cast aside by that particular culture. And so for someone to categorize Jesus as a Samaritan was a high insult. And the Pharisees knew it. So Jesus, you are a Samaritan. And if that doesn't sound shocking enough, notice the second criticism or the second accusation. The Pharisees look Jesus Christ in the face and they say, it's hard to even utter it, isn't it? You are possessed with a demon. Here the Pharisees accuse Jesus Christ of being under the influence of the devil's evil henchmen. They, they accuse Jesus Christ of being in league with the devil, the diabolos. Now this morning I want you to, to feel the weight, especially of this particular accusation. This might get a little personal. I want you to imagine that someone approached you and said, you are a Nazi. Oh, and you are a communist. And you are a socialist. Can you imagine to be called a Nazi, a communist, a socialist? Now, I want you to imagine that someone puts all those comments together and they multiply times 10,000. That is just the tip of the iceberg of what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of when they say, you have a demon. They put his motives in question. That is to say, they mock the motives of Jesus Christ. I find Jesus' comeback absolutely fascinating. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know one of the things that Jesus becomes quite famous of, or famous for, is when people come to him, whether it's the disciples or the Pharisees or otherwise, Jesus is famous for when someone asks a question, he doesn't answer them. He gives a question back, almost like a good prosecuting attorney. But here what we see in verse 49, a rare moment when Jesus actually answers the question. He says in verse 49, I do not have a demon. That's pretty emphatic, wouldn't you say? I do not have a demon. And so in this rare moment, Jesus answers the question. It's very clear up front. He tells them, I do not have a demon. But then he moves forward in verse 49. And he has a few things to suggest to these religious leaders. First, he says, I honor my father. I don't have a demon. But here's what you need to understand. I honor my father. The word honor comes from a Greek word. It's the Greek word tamao. Not tamao. Tamao. 
Tamao is the Greek word that is translated honor that means to pay respect. It means to show value to someone or something. It means to show the, the high worth of something or someone. And so to honor his father means, in so many words, to obey his father. It means to pay him proper respect. Which is how Jesus Christ, as you know, has always related to the Father from all eternity and to all eternity. Jesus Christ has been in perfect submission to the Father from all eternity to all eternity. But then notice what he does in verse 49. He turns the table on the Pharisees. He reveals something about their hearts. He does it in front of everyone. He says, I honor my Father You dishonor me. And here's what he does. You remember the Greek word tamao? Not tamao. (laughs) He takes the Greek word tamao and he puts an alpha in front of it. He puts an A in front of it. Now, if I were to say to you, I'm a theist, what would that mean? I believe in God. If I put an A in front of theist, now what do you believe about me? What do you know about me? I don't believe in God. And so when you have the word tamao, to honor, and you put an A in front of tamao, not tameo, it means the exact opposite of honor, you see. And that's what Jesus does here. He says, I honor the Father, you dishonor me. Here's what the word means. It means to treat shamefully. Jesus says, you have have done the exact opposite of what it means to honor God. Instead of realizing, you see, the reason for their existence, which is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, the Pharisees dishonor God. They dishonor Jesus, which is to heap a great insult on the greatness of God. Of his worth. I want you to see something now about Jesus' character. Jesus here demonstrates, once again, the submission toward the Father. Jesus shows in a very practical way how he has from all eternity submitted to the plans and the purposes of the Father, giving you and I a tremendous example of what it means to submit to the God. Of the universe. Moreover, he makes it clear, abundantly clear, that he has a relationship with the Father. We have seen Jesus describe in the Gospel of John, we've seen him describe his relationship with his Father over and over and over again. And so this is not the first time that these religious leaders have heard about the relationship that Jesus has had and continues to have with his Father. But here's the brutal irony. The irony is this. While the Pharisees are mocking the motives of Jesus, he is the only one in the room at this point who is rightly related to God. I don't know about you, but for me, that is dripping with irony. They tell him he's a Samaritan. They accuse him of being demon-possessed. And now they come to him 
And they treat him in a dishonorable way when he alone is the only one who is submitted from all eternity to the Father. He's the only one that's rightly related to his Father. And all of this begs a very, very practical question. What about you? Are you rightly related to the God of the universe? Do you submit to his authority? Do you have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you stand in line with these Pharisees and mock his motives? I want you to see a second way that the Pharisees mock his motives. Secondly, they mock his claims. The Pharisees mock the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 51 and 52. Here is Jesus' claim in verse 51. He says, if anyone keeps my word, mark that word keep, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The reason I wanted you to mark that word keeps is that comes from a Greek word that means to continue in a state. It means to observe or to continually obey. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Anyone who obeys my word, anyone who believes my word, he will never see death. And this is not new information for the religious leaders. Jesus has already taught in John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so here's what we have. We have the Lord Jesus Christ offering an invitation to believe the gospel to these religious leaders. Anyone who keeps my word, that person will never see death. He offers the Pharisees eternal life. And here's the exciting thing. He offers each person in church today eternal life. Anyone who keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, I want you to see the Pharisees' criticism. It's a gracious thing. I think you would, you would agree with me for Jesus Christ to offer this gracious invitation of salvation. You would think that the Pharisees would respond with a well, tell me more, Jesus, or I'd I'd love to talk some more about it, or I believe, I trust, I want to obey you, Jesus. But what do they do in verse 52? Look at it with me. They say, now we know you have a demon. And I'm studying this going, these guys just don't get it. They accuse him, first of all, of having a demon and being a Samaritan. And then Jesus offers them salvation for free. And they say, now we've got it. You've got a demon. And so instead of acknowledging that their hearts were darkened by the deceitfulness of sin, they accuse them once again of being demon possessed. Instead of humbling themselves before the Lord of the universe, they hoist this additional accusation on Jesus. Instead of submitting to Jesus as the savior of the world, They heap insults upon him. I want you to see once again something about the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we all know that Jesus is fully aware of what resides in the hearts of the Pharisees. Yet, 
he graciously extends an invitation for them to receive eternal life. He said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lost people like the Pharisees. Lost people like the people of Everson, Linden, Sumas, and Bellingham. He said in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to challenge you with this. Look around our county. There are literally thousands of people looking for rest. There are thousands of people who need rest for their souls. I'm convinced there are several people here this morning who need rest for their souls. And Jesus extends that same invitation to you today. My question is, will you continue to mock the claims with the Pharisees, the claims of Jesus, or will you trust in this Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that you might receive the forgiveness of all your sins? Many of you are Christ followers, and you say, I've heard it, I've heard the message, there's the gospel, there it is again and again and again. And one of the things I'm trying to get us accustomed to learning about as a church family is... I'll begin with me. I need to hear the gospel today. Tomorrow, I need to hear the gospel. And for the rest of my life, I need to hear the gospel. I need to celebrate the gospel. I need to sing the gospel. I need to live the gospel. I need to learn the gospel. If you are like my friend who says, I leave this church because all I ever hear is the gospel every week, you're sorely mistaken. We all, believers and unbelievers, need to see and savor the message of the gospel every day of our lives. I want you to see a third way, and this is the point when, did I hear some pages turning? Or some, okay, this is the point, you keep your pen out, oh, there you, okay, keep your pen out, keep your Bible open as we look at this third way that the Pharisees mock Jesus. Here they mock his identity. The Pharisees mock his identity. Notice his criticism in verse 53. And I want you to see the the sarcasm, the cynicism that drips in these verses. They say, are you greater? I can see them with their chests all puffed out. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Verse 53b. Who Do you make yourself out to be? I want to encourage you when you read scripture to not just read it as mere academic. Read it with passion. Read it with heart. And so you see an insight like this because really what the Pharisees are doing here is they're not asking a question. With their chest puffed out and their bony fingers in Jesus' face, they say this, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? The accusation flies in his face. It's not a question. It's an accusation. 
And so they've already accused Jesus twice of having a demon. Now they mock his identity. And I would submit this to you, that Jesus' answer should shake them. The answer that you will see from the lips of Jesus should utterly rock their worlds. The answer that Jesus gives here in just a moment should lead every one of them to faith and repentance. Here is Jesus' comeback. And there's a whole series of things that he says, and I see several sermons here. You're like, please, no. We're we're just in John 8. We have over 20 chapters to go. Here's what Jesus does. It's a series of accusations and rebukes. Let me give them to you back and forth. Accusation number one, or rather I should say assertion number one, verse 54. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And Jesus is building his argument here. And then he has a rebuke in verse 55. He says to these religious leaders, the theologians of the day, the wise guys, the ones who should know better, the students of the Old Testament, you have not known him. That is to say, you do not know God the Father. And then he ups the ante in verse 55, and he says, it's not only the fact that you don't know him, but you're all liars. I don't know if you've ever been called a liar before. It's not a fun thing, especially when it's not true. You are a liar, Jesus says. Then notice another assertion, also in verse 55. Speaking of God the Father, he says, I know him. And here repeats himself. He says, I keep his word. That is to say, I obey the Father. I submit to the Father. And so what Jesus does here is he draws a very significant contrast between the Pharisees and himself. The Pharisees, you see, were not rightly related to God. And they speak, as we might say in American culture, they speak with forked tongue. They are bald-faced liars. But if you think that's bad, it's this next statement that I believe should rock the Pharisees to their very core. Notice what he says in verse 58. And this actually has become one of my favorite verses in all the gospel of John. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Notice the importance. When Jesus says truly, truly, that's that's code word to say, listen up. Get your pen out. Keep your Bible open. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Would you hold your finger in John chapter 8 and go back with me to the book of Exodus? Because I want to trace an argument that will give you a better idea of the significance of Jesus' statement. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You recall the story when God has instructed Moses to carry out some, uh, what you might call some responsibilities for the living God. And Moses has a question. He says in Exodus 3, verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, "What What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, don't miss this. Remember Jesus' statement in John eight fifty eight. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Notice then verse 15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Now we see a shift. Here's the first time we see the word Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. And so in verse 15, we see that the name of God becomes Yahweh. It becomes Yahweh. John Frame says this, so the name of God the name by which he wants his people especially to remember him by and forever is Yahweh or Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, we know these verses as the the Shema. You talk to almost any Jewish person in our culture and say the word Shema, they will know. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. John Frame adds this. This is a confession of lordship. That Yahweh is the Lord. That he is the one and true God and that therefore he deserves all our love and allegiance. Now would you go back to John chapter 8 and look at verse 58. Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed. The word was, that's not normally a word you would do a word study on, right? Was. It's a little, it's a teeny word. The word was means to exist. What did God tell Moses? Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. Before Abraham existed, I am. Abby, can we look at that slide once again? Before Abraham existed, I am. The two words, I am, come from a little Greek phrase that's written in the present tense. Many of you have heard this before. It's one of my great passions to make sure that this truth comes out to as many people as possible. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Before Abraham existed, I am. That is to say, I have always existed in eternity past, in eternity present, and eternity future. When your children come to you and say, when did God begin? You know the way I answer this question. Ask your mother, right? And the kids go to their mother and Jereen is a great theologian. What would Jereen tell my kids? Jesus is infinite. Jesus doesn't have a beginning. Jesus has always existed from all eternity and to all eternity. That is, he is telling the Pharisees that it is God in the flesh who stands before them. The man who stands before the Pharisees has no beginning and no end. He is eternally God. Now move forward from this story 
roughly 300 years into the future. Think about church history. Roughly 300 years into the future, and some godly men came together and crafted a very important statement that we know today as the Nicene Creed, which affirms the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten, begotten of the Father, that is, of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being in one substance with the Father. You see, Jesus is not like the Father. Jesus is in one substance with the Father. And the scriptures repeat this important truth over and over again. In Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which means that he has preeminence over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is above all things And in him, in Jesus, he holds all things together. The very first message that we partook in together in John chapter 1, verse 1, we learn this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and Jesus dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to close this morning by taking a deeper look, if that's possible, at the mocking voice. I want to ask, what is this mocking of Jesus' motives and claims and his identity really and truly reveal about the heart of these religious leaders? Well, it reveals a sinful heart of unbelief. It reveals a a heart that while outwardly may look good, that outwardly may even look evangelical, but inwardly is cold and calculating and callous. It reveals a heart that is far from God. It reveals an animosity to divine things. And ultimately, it reveals an animosity to God. What's interesting is you look at the last verse in John chapter 8. This becomes somewhat of a thumbnail sketch that really resides what is in the heart of every unbelieving person. So they picked up stones to throw at him. You see, remember, these were the theological students of the day. They had their theology down. When Jesus said, before Abraham existed, I am, it's not like they scratched their head and said, let's go back and, and talk about this and figure out what he meant. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that as he stood before them, he claimed to be God in the flesh. And so the response was, kill that man. The heart of the Pharisees, I believe, is a prototype 
for every unbelieving person. The mocking voice you see is, is a walking resume of every unbelieving person. I read a, a little piece several years ago, and I've read it many times since, by Jonathan Edwards, entitled, Men Naturally God's Enemies. It's the kind of thing when you open up the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post, it's not going to make the bestseller list. Men, naturally, God's enemies. And I want to read some statements to conclude from that message. Here's how Edwards says that that sinners are naturally God's enemies. He says, they entertain very low and contemptible thoughts about God. The language of their hearts is, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? Do you hear the Pharisees mocking voice? Edward says, they have an inbred distaste and disrelish of God's perfections. He says, their wills are contrary to his will. They are enemies to God and their affections. They are engaged in war against God. They are mortal enemies to God. That is to say, they have that enmity in their hearts that strikes at the life of God. He says, natural men are enemies to to the dominion of God, and their nature shows their goodwill to dethrone him if they could. Then he says, but natural men, without a mighty work of God to change their hearts, will never get over their enmity to God. They are greater enemies to God than they are to the devil. Here's the irony that I trust will awaken a person this morning, that will awaken a group of people this morning, these religious leaders that had this conflict with Jesus, they were just that. They were religious leaders. They thought they were serving God. They thought their hearts were right with God. But deep down, we've seen They're prepared to mock the motives of Jesus and mock the claims of Jesus and mock Jesus' very identity. They hate him. Their words prove it. Their hands and feet prove it. Their heart proves it. And when they were confronted with the reality of Jesus and the gospel, they rejected it and they repudiated it. My question today is this. Will you stone him or will you serve him? Will you wrangle with him or will you worship him? Will you despise him or will you be devoted to him? I find it interesting, BJ, that you read the verses in Revelation chapter 22. Because I want to pick up where BJ left off. BJ gave us the... The hope that emerges in Revelation chapter 22. I want to offer this morning the reality in addition to the hope that emerges in that chapter. Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That they may enter the city by the gates. Notice outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, 
and murders and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. At the end of the day, my friends, there will be no mocking voices in heaven. Only the sweet sound of worshiping our heavenly king. And so today, there are two kinds of people. There are those who mock and there are those who worship. My challenge is, are you numbered among those who worship the triune God? Are you worshiping the living God of the universe? Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are quickened and challenged by recognizing the the weightiness and the depth of depravity that existed in the Pharisees. Indeed, we do not cast judgment on them because those of us who are followers of Christ, we remember, we remember vividly how sinful our hearts were and how we manifested that sinful heart to you and our response to you. I thank you, God, that for many of us, you have quickened our hearts, you have regenerated our hearts and transformed our hearts so that our motives are made anew. They're refreshed. You have given us the ability, the desire, and the inclination to walk with Jesus and worship Jesus and repent of our sins on a daily basis. And so I pray that as we remember our former mocking voice, that that would lead us to rejoice in the gospel and the salvation that you have purchased for us. For unbelievers, God, I pray that if there's someone here that continues to mock the Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. May you turn a mocking voice into a worshiping voice. May you turn one who has rebelled into a person who delights to to live for Jesus, to obey Jesus, to please Jesus. God, you're doing such a good work in this place, and I ask that that work would continue on a daily basis, that we would come in contact with the gospel afresh each day to be reminded of all that you have delivered us from and all that you desire unconverted people to be delivered from. We glory in that great reality of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.